This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we reflect on the end of the Soviet Union and examine two pieces uh, related to same. The first is by Christopher Arthur, titled A Clock Without a Spring, Epitaph for the USSR, and the second is from a familiar character to the show, Halal Tikton, titled Theories of Disintegration of the USSR. Cool. So I guess the re- the reason I wanted to read what we're reading tonight, uh, or I suggested the Tikton piece, is because I want to start to research um, kind of like the failed attempts at reform within the Soviet Union, like post-Stalin, um, Khrushchev, and the Gorbachev eras, and you know, kind of what happened. There's there seems to be a lot more stuff that I can find on Gorbachev than Khrushchev, but I don't know. Maybe if anyone's listening to this, maybe they can send us something or. <clears throat> We could maybe like find something on the Khrushchev era, it just for, if only for my own personal like reading list. Um, but yeah, because I want to, you know, I want to, I guess, studying broadly in the broadest sense, like kind of what went wrong with the USSR. You see how it, its historical development situation, um, put, you know, sort of put it in this blind alley. But I want to kind of look at maybe the, the different like attempts at reform a little more closely to understand if maybe maybe they could have tweaked the political situation in some way that could have allowed them to i don't know if not successfully build socialism at least maybe have failed better than they did um or even maybe preserved it from becoming this sort of uh authoritarian like kleptocracy that it is now you know as opposed to the authoritarian you know bureaucratic collectivist or whatever situation it was in its time period so i kind of like to look at that and i guess part of the one of the things that kind of disappointed me i guess yeah about this Tikton piece and to a certain extent even the other piece we read um a clock without a spring uh, epitaph for the ussr was that i guess they both did kind of neglect like the broader um political situation and like kind of like the global geostrategic situation that influenced this i guess what tickton calls non-motive production and the way that it it developed right well i would say too um tickton says most sovietologists did not expect the ussr to come to an end most people didn't but they subsequently yeah and i mean the cia didn't even you know the cia had this false impression that they were doing pretty great actually but the um What's interesting is the word Reagan appears in this Tickton article maybe two times, and the word Carter appears zero times. And so it's just interesting. I I agree with you, uh, Jake, that there's very little attention paid to the historical specificities here that led to the demise of the Soviet Union. I actually do think... Tickton, and then Arthur even more so, lay out pretty interesting arguments about, you know, what was the Soviet Union, why was it unable to outcompete the United States and other capitalist countries. I think it, it, it has a good broad view of things, an interesting broad view of things, you know, some things we can learn from. So I was glad we read these. But as far as your research question goes, of you know the immediate causes of the demise of the Soviet Union, I don't I don't think that these are texts that actually answer those questions. And I guess right? I didn't want it to be. I kind of wanted to look maybe at like the broader, get a better sense of like the specific like economic structures of the Soviet Union um, in the sort of like yeah the post-Stalin era, and what you know because there definitely is a like. The inability of the society to like economically function the way that people wanted it to 
was definitely a obviously a huge factor underpinning the I guess what Tickton calls like the disintegration of the USSR. Um, but that 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 interact like that those economic you know like it's political economy. There's like two halves of it. Like the the like there was these maybe like unconscious forces that exist in terms of like the social relations of the system of the mode of production that you're in. But there's also those things are held in place by political decisions, you know, at a higher, at another level and the interaction of those two things. So I wanted to kind of, I feel this understanding the economic underpinnings, I guess was maybe way for me to sort of lay the base to kind of understand the political machinations that happened above it, you know? Yeah. In a pretty Marxist way, because um, like your research question is, you know, both Tickton and Arthur are arguing like that your research question is in some ways at a like lower level of abstraction than the things that they think are most like determinate in these sorts of questions. Like, you know, Tickton is arguing in essentially like, I guess both of them end up arguing in sort of Aristotelian terms. You know, Tickton does it in terms of, um, you know, breaking things down into different types of causes. You know, and then um, Arthur is doing it in the Hegelian tradition with form and content and that sort of thing. But ultimately, they're giving like two halves of an Aristotelian sort of deep dive into Marx's theories of like how dialectical interaction gives political factors and economic factors their own type of causation, their own like specific type of causation. Um, and what, what's kind of notable to me is that in the Ticton piece, he kind of makes a nod towards this Hegelian way of explaining things. And then he goes back to explaining things as he would like to, which is in a, you know, a, he's not a positivist or empiricist or something, but, you know, certainly not a Hegelian either. Like, and I don't know, I, I like the way that these pieces contrast in their language but articulate something like this, uh, like a similar picture, at least the Ticton that, um, that Arthur is working from. And um, so I, I appreciate that both of them are giving like a read about how those political factors, not, not that they're, you know, not important, that they're just epiphenomenal. You know, that's not the picture that you get. But there's a species of economic determinism th- that, you know, shows that in a lot of these situations, these like, a lot of the situations that were asked like politically to to take to take on you know thinking through historically like you know economic factors were dominant and like you can see it in the way things unfolded yeah i mean you you miss certain things uh though with that stuff you know people forget for example that carter basically initiated the reigniting of the cold war and then reagan kind of expanded on that um so you know you you can use the what what's interesting when you do pay attention to the political aspect i suppose is the ways that the antagonisms between the west and the soviet union were at times an existential struggle and that at, at other times the antagonism was was a structuring element of both uh nation states and so if the situation in the u.s was one of declining preeminence economic slowdown those kind of things and reagan wasn't able to permanently solve for these things but the u.s was facing problems with this impression of decline and this pivot this pivot sorry towards the soviets helped with that 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 he makes that that he borrows you know he builds on carter from and it's interesting because before that, in the 70s, you have a lot of internal instability among the Soviet Union and the West. And they both do detente. You know, they, they're, they're, they're facing this internal social pressure and their political classes kind of agree to leave each other alone a little bit. And so one of the interesting things about Reagan was that he actually recognized for the situation to change to advantage the United States, the political economy of the Cold War had to change. And he had to find this middle ground between the 70s peacefulness between the countries and the nuclear knife's edge policies of prior administrations. And so, I mean, it's... uh, 
it's fascinating, you know, what what Carter and Reagan did having these direct impacts on the existence of the Soviet Union. Um, and that's why this 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 podcast is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan. <laughs> well, I don't know. To, to just touch a little more on these political factors before talking about what the essay is getting. Yeah, I, I do think like, we should dive in. I think you're right that we should dive into what Tickton and Arthur well, are saying. But go on. Yeah, yeah. But like there is, I don't know, there is like important stuff happening on these levels. It's just that in a lot of mainstream kind of analyses of these situations, but even, you know, sometimes even Marxist ones, like um, it's all about what Gorbachev did, you know, or about what Yeltsin did and big figures kind of maneuvering, which is it not about that? I mean, of, no, I mean, of course it's not like this. Of course, though, of course, those to, things you, like you have to understand the sea. You have to, you have to understand the sea they're swimming in. Yeah. Like you have to understand what motivate like why are their personal motivations as such why did those people get there like you know what boundaries are they making decisions against like in the day-to-day like that they're thinking about like there's i don't know like understanding their choices actually means understanding a lot about their context right right yeah you like it's not that um you know like i guess the American anti-communist ideology is just like they couldn't hold it together anymore, and they they tried, you know, like they it was an evil ideology, and it could never work according to human nature, and so you know when they tried to reform it, it wouldn't work. Or they have the other people, the the tanky thing where it's like everything was going great, and then Gorbachev slipped on a banana peel <laughs> and lost an empire, you know, and it's like it's neither of those is really correct like there's definitely dynamics where it's like yeah why did they just why did they decide that reform was necessary now why did the vision that they had for like their transition why was it shaped the way that it was you know like what what were they responding to yeah and i think you're right to place a lot of the historic agency you know of the soviet union you know stalinism as such or whatever like you know leninism as like a, a system um, a lot of the historical agency does come from like the the kind of post-war, like the the turn towards um, consumption and uh, like there there is like a I don't know there's basically a chance for the USSR to de-Stalinize and like remake Eastern Europe and perhaps like it you could do endless alternate like histories about you know, what a more democratic version of de-Stalinization would have looked like. One that doesn't send in the tanks, you know, <laughs> like, because um, it's sometimes forgotten that uh, Khrushchev was the person who sent in the tanks that other people would cheer on uh, and become tankies about. And, you know, so- somewhere down the line, being a Khrushchevite, you know, mean- meant somehow not being a tankie or something. You know, it, it all got bungled. But but the truth is, Khrushchev sent sent in the tanks too. That you know, to be a, a tanky in a way was to be a defensist at all because some of those underlying things didn't get like didn't get like peeled back with destalinization. So to go to what Tickton is saying now, for a theory to be successful, it has to fulfill certain conditions. It must be able to link categories such as labor to a mode of change. It must show how the form of the category could no longer be maintained. Thus, it can be argued that labor in the USSR was atomized, which led to low productivity, which led to increased levels of discontent and eventually to an absolute barrier in production. In short, the theory must be able to show why the USSR came into existence, why it industrialized the country, why that could not be maintained. And so he is looking at it at the minutia of, you know, was the value form in place? what was the mode of production and we see that Tickton actually says that there was an abortive mode of production or a non-mode of production that was in place in the Soviet Union and you know there's a there's a real strength to taking that uh, broad of a lens as well well yeah I mean the big one of Tickton's big things is kind of like um Discredit, like going after the idea that it, the Soviet Union was a planned economy, 
and he basically points to all of like the waste and the way like just the a lot of the irrationalities and inefficiencies of it to say like this wasn't really like a meaningful plan like a lot of the quotas were some basically arbitrary and then you had people kind of rushing to fulfill them in ways that were more literal than more to the letter of it than the spirit of what the plan was or the planners were asking for and just the way that like labor was allocated didn't make any sense right and so like that's that's a that's like a big that's like a big aspect of his broader critique of the soviet union the other thing he basically says is that workers were still alienated from their labor but the state didn't have the right to fire anybody and so that's a big reason why they weren't able to discipline the labor force such that they could transition to more sophisticated technologies uh, especially for like the consumer market um, like they just did they weren't like the factory system as it existed in the 80s wasn't able to handle the kind of like wasn't able to copy like the sophisticated production techniques of that period of, that had been developed in that period of capitalism well that actually gets us into arthur too who i think really expands yeah i'm, I'm probably blending these two in my mind to a certain extent but yeah because well, what's interesting about what arthur is saying is that basically the Soviet Union, in its pursuit of you know socialism through the means of capitalist development, that it copies the forms of Taylorism and of you know the the factory as the materialization of capitalism, but that the logic of state domination over the economy the logic of having the workforce not be free wage laborers but actually be embedded in production in in the same way that they were in feudalism basically right that that uh, there is that political domination over production um that you're apl- you you have the materialization of capitalism in the factory system without the same incentive structures and something interesting that um, Arthur says is uh, in the, the USSR, the factory provided no avenue for workers' initiative, and in any case, their exclusion from control over the surplus gave them no guarantee that such efforts would benefit themselves or their families. Thus, far not much different from capitalism, but in fact, Worse than capitalism for the individual bureaucrat had no immediate interest of his own in increasing social wealth either. Remember, they were not stockholders in the industries under their controls. Their rewards depended on political favor. Hence the resistance to innovation, the tendency to pass the buck and blame others when things went wrong, the hoarding of labor, and the materials against a future episode of storming. And storming was basically they would they would spend most of the month during a target period just gathering materials, and then at the end they'd just go through a, a kind of blitzkrieg of production. Yeah. You know what? This reminds me of like startups or like <laughs> modern kind of media projects. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, it's uh, yeah, like, you know, I'm staying out three days in a row. I'm going beast mode. You know, that's how committed I am to this. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's Tickton is doing this uh, study of USSR's breakdown. And by the way, what we read is the theories of disintegration in the USSR. He's um, kind of flexing that his theory of the USSR provides a better explanation for you know what happened than you know quite a few other explanations. He lists several. Um, and towards the end, he makes a gesture that, listen, I'm interested in the USSR's breakdown as part of the general capitalist breakdown that I believe is happening, which is, uh, it's, I think, is an, is an interesting way to pivot this because it's, it's not immediately suggested by the way, by what he says here. Right, but he's actually, you know what I think, part of what he's getting at is he says, if I can just... Look at this for a second. He says that integration of this union implies that the global integrative process of the Cold War must end. And I don't think he's actually... He says, we can only understand that barbarism as a further step in the global disintegrative process heralded by the October Revolution itself. And so he's saying that the... um, He's saying something along the lines of the October Revolution was a result of capitalism in some ways exhausting itself in the early 20th century. 
that the Cold War setup and the post-war setup, post-World War II setup, held capitalism aloft, including the Soviet Union's part in holding the capitalist West aloft. And now that the Soviet Union is gone, that that's actually going to create political problems for the capitalist countries because their one of their structuring elements is gone. And I mean, we see that in the the wackiness of the modern conservative movement after the uh, after the fall of the USSR, especially. It hits liberals a little bit later. But definitely there's a a kind of listlessness that follows the political victory over the USSR. Well, they definitely tried to basically fill the void of the USSR with terrorism, right? Right, and that hasn't really it hasn't really worked as well. I don't. No, yeah, that that yeah that that whole thing is definitely the wheels are coming off of that. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a tantalizing idea. It, I don't know, I don't know if I can commit. I mean, I think it's interesting that he does like yeah, he basically situates the entire thing with like the broader like disintegration of capitalism, which he says is happening over centuries, whereas the USSR was a, something that happened over decades. Right, and so yeah, exactly. If if you extend his time scale, I actually think it makes quite a bit of sense. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, there is like a there is de- and there is like a like a long term secular decline of like the rate of profit, you know. But it, how long it would take for it to really hit the rock bottom is anybody's yeah. guess. You know. So one of the things too that um, that Arthur says, um, he says that. It is capital that demands the continual reduction of socially necessary labor time. The key point is that the form determination of capital as infinitely self-expanding value means capitalism is utterly different from any other mode of production. In all modes of production, it is possible to seek ways of improving the productivity of labor, and all exploitative modes rely on some form of pumping out surplus labor. Only capital is in point of form as such driven by this interest under the necessity to accumulate, quote-unquote, wealth. And part of what he's talking about is that in the USSR, you have a capitalism-adjacent but not fully articulated mode of production. And so the need to drive down socially necessary labor time is blunted by the fact that there are not actually competing firms within the confines of the nation. And the political state guarantees your firm's existence. Workers are fully embedded parts of production. Um, but I think one of the things that a lot of, and I actually, I actually think non-mode of production stuff from Tickton and Arthur, I think this stuff gets at what was going on with the Soviet Union more than most Marxist theories. But one of the things that I feel like they miss is the parts of state capitalism theory that do make sense to me, right? So I think the values form still haunts the USSR to an extent, in the sense that these firms are abstractly compelled to compete with the world market. It's blunted, it's not capitalism proper, um, etc. But I would argue that the the firms may not have been competing, but there is a transitive property value pressure to being encapsulated by a world system that your political rulers are trying, even if they're failing, to make you compete with. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the weird ways that there is a socialist primitive accumulation kind of thing that takes place. And viewed through the lens of interstate, inter international uh, competition as the means of spreading capitalism from England onward. I think it makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah, I mean, just something you said a bit earlier, like, I don't know if there's like a transitive property value form. I think that what's really necessitated, especially by approaching like the especially post World War One, is that you have like a robust uh, military industrial complex, right? And so that's really what I think necessitates um, maybe competitive surplus extraction compared to what goes on on the world market. But I don't think that it necessitates that the law of value be internally functional within the society, right? Right, right, right. This touches on some of the stuff we were talking about with world systems theory. And how uh, I think, yeah, Tickton's uh, conclusions are really consonant with world systems theory. Um, it, whereas it sounds like uh, our friend and listener, Matt Costas, is a uh, working from the, the sort of Brennerite uh, tradition and working up towards the 
kind of uh, Bukharan kind of a critique of nation statism, at least the, the old Bukharan rest in peace. Um, like this, this is taking, a, I suppose, a more, this does what world systems theory shit wants to do while also doing the, doing the search for the essence that world systems theory thinks is unnecessary. Like this kind of squares a circle. This kind of, I think comes back around to pretty much an orthodox historical materialism, like reassembling it from the spare parts that were, you know, developed in different directions by academic theorists. And this is what makes Ticton one of the most, like, one of the best, like, post-trot, kind of, like, whatever. I don't know what the hell he is, you know? That, that um... Yeah. I, I do think, though, we need to look at the ways that um, having a, a kind of, quote-unquote, socialist political economy um, imposed on the capitalist development process affects things, right? So Arthur says that the global factory in the USSR started from the capitalist model, of which the key element is the hierarchical division of labor from those at the bottom who execute orders of others up to those involved in the five-year plan process. And But Arthur goes on to say, a factory is not a mode of production. It has to be specified further by what social form regulates it. Since the factory system was laid down through capital's own development, it followed that once separated from capital as a social form, this content lost the character precisely of being a content and became a material foundation of the new order. The great difference with capitalism is that the lack of an objective value regulator leaves the mechanism without a spring. There is no drive for capital accumulation. Furthermore, without being continually regulated by capital, this material presupposition ceased to be posited by capital as its presupposition, and hence became the subject to a kind of drift. The Soviet factory became unlike capitalism list factories in many respects yeah this is like a better version of the sort of hegelizing critical theory approach that someone like uh moisha poststone is going for because for poststone the fact that the factory system was you know enough of the stamp of capitalism you know but it for there's like good hegelian reasons that like that that wouldn't be enough and um Actually, you know, this is really the difference between Marxist versions of Hegelian, Marxist versions of Hegelianism, and like just the regular sort of like alienation stuff. That I'm not saying it's unrelated, but like, you know, it's not especially like Marxian. This is most highlighted in uh, Tickton's last bit. I'm sorry, in Arthur's last bit about the author whose name I won't try to pronounce. Um, where um, where they're kind of defining capital in terms of alienation f uh, from the proletariat as opposed to, you know, the value form, you know, being sort of the essence of capital. I kind of reflected while reading it that this was probably the best integration of what I take to be two super important Marxist ideas, historical materialism and value theory, and kind of, you know, very, put very, like, I mean, not exactly simply, it's a little flowery, but it, it's, it's bold, and, it, and it's, and it's um, just intellectually very kind of cut, you know, it's, it, the argumentation is pretty rigorous, like, uh, this is the difference between a Marxist theory and something else, is that that weird Hegelian fucking thing going on is, is the value relation. Um, and without some kind of, what's, what, what are the word they keep using? The, the regulation, the self-regulation, the, um, about the meta, I don't know, the heat, the, without that homeostatic relationship, you don't have something that like holds together. I don't know. I guess, I guess where Poststone takes us is, 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 um, I don't know. I think they might have some common ground in that capitalism is the only thing that really works with something so essential like that some like weird ideal form that bears a stamp on the whole society in that way even if um somebody like arthur is more influenced in a direction where he's open to there being other modes of production 
somebody like Postone takes a more Viberian direction and says, well, capitalism is in a proper way the only mode of production because of that weird value thing going on. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I, I don't know if I would go that far. I think that you know, it's it's tough to say because the problem is, you know, in the buildup for World War II and stuff, they basically went in this barrack, turned turn basically like the Soviet Union into like a barracks, you know, and we just have to, you know, sacrifice everything towards like, yeah, building up like military industry and stuff like that. And it's, it's very, like, they talk about how they import like capital, like technology that's been formerly like subsumed under capital and they try to integrate aspects of Taylorism and uh, just, yeah, capitalist like production. And it doesn't entirely work because you don't have the same incentive systems in place. Um, but the other problem is it's like, you know, you have to produce a lot in order to be viable in order to basically defend this territory that you have. And at the same time, you also probably, they don't really have the like in- intellectual infrastructure in place to try and develop something else. And because they've basically created like USSR, you know, well, not only did they kill all like the, the smartest people in the party, but they also you know, basically beat the proletarian down until it didn't really have any meaningful agency like within the society or over their labor, except in the negative and the ways that like Tickton, Tickton describes, right? Well, I think it gets to some of the limits, you know, World War II or not, I think it gets to some of the limits of, of political willpower. Um, because you know arthur says the politically enforced directives were incapable of controlling the factories in such a manner as to promote the development of the productive forces in a stable and permanent fashion lenin surprisingly for such a political thinker was enthusiastic about the scientific management pioneered theoretically by taylor and practically by ford but the truth is that taylorism was never applied in the ussr the soviets had no theoretical objection to it they wanted to apply so scientific management, but they were unable to do so because production was governed by a non-capitalist social form. It could not be applied because it was tailor-made for capitalism. It is not, as Lenin seemed to imagine, a socially neutral body of knowledge. Moreover, Taylor would roll in his grave if anyone dared to associate him with the gross overmanning characteristic of Soviet industry. Fiat built a factory for the Soviets. It took four times as many workers to run as exactly the same factory in Italy. It's it's pretty stark. Like this is a really solid blend of theory that usually goes in different directions. Like you can hear Poststone, and you can hear you know people that are I don't know, just like regular ass economists in there. <laughs> right. He says a combination of political factors, coercion, and voluntarist enthusiasm got things off the ground, but because no new mode of production was stabilized, the system could not run itself when these political pressures diminished. Um, and so that goes on to uh, Arthur says that the whole experience demonstrates the wisdom of Marx's insight that economics is decisive over politics. The elite wanted to be a true ruling class, and it seemed they had all the power anyone could wish for, with the KGB, the Gulag, and the house-trained party millions. But they could not ground themselves on production. They poured out plans, decrees, orders, reforms, but they could not deliver the goods. It was as simple as that. Some of those passages where he gets a little more, like, brazen are a pleasure to read. He he calls actually existing socialism. I, I think we should use this from now on, <laughs> no longer existing socialism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that really kind of takes a, you know, when people go, well, you're criticizing actually existing socialism. It's like, well, it's actually no longer existing socialism, mm-hmm. technically still, still speaking. Still in Korea, so checkmate. <laughs> That's true. They've still got it running in, in the good old DPRK. Um, I like actually existed, you know, it's just easier to say. Uh, but anyway, enough about my my Frank Lunsing. I have more. I, I really I I could quote this Arthur it's, all night. It's a there was... it's a quote. It's a quotey. It's very quotey. There's a lot of like sweet dunks in it. Um, well, I mean, even just little things that are that are super insightful, like what was accumulated in the USR SSR was not capital, but means of production lacking the form of capital. Yeah, so that whole thing is, I think, really kind of important because um, sometimes you'll get into the Brenner, the Robert Brenner conversations about uh, capital and the social relationship of capital. You know, the value form appears in history before capitalism, right? And um, like, and this is, uh, I, I don't know, 
there's a separate question of of just like the industrial forms of capital, like the factory that I was talking about with Poststone. Um, then there's also this other question of like of are those previous things in history like you know are are those like forms of self-expanding value that you find in history, you know? Does that make like capitalism like eternal or something? And this is a, quite a good Hegelian reason for why not. It's because, yeah, you have the form, but it's not like the content of production. You know, it doesn't like seize hold in the same way. And like, there's something about the Brenner definition of generalized market dependence that like, I don't know, it might overlap a lot, but it, it doesn't quite capture the value relationship in the way that Arthur does. Right. I think he his deep dive on value. I think anybody who's anybody who's like what's the point of value theory or something like that. I think you should read Arthur's chapter 10 The New Dialectic in Marx's Capital for sure because this is this is a very practical revolutionary application of the idea of value theory. Yeah. And and how it differs from other like Hegelian reads of, you know, Marx. To go on, though, with the theme of uh, the limits of political will, I mean, this is, this is something that keeps coming up in this essay that's really fantastic, that reminds me of a lot of the stuff the anti-politics folks have been saying. Um, if the USSR as a capital system was really expansion-oriented, how is that compatible with the failure to innovate, which led to permanent stagnation? No matter how the political authority, for external reasons of state, tried to coerce or stimulate the producers, the economy responded only sluggishly in quantitative terms, and innovation became completely bogged down. This was crucial politically for the failure to catch up with the West and the failure to achieve real growth. So I think this kind of actually gets at what the intersection of the direct immediate causes, stuff like the, you know, the competition with the West that, that Carter and Reagan initiate with this mass military buildup that's unsustainable for the Soviet Union, and the broader what kind of society was this question. Because if you just can't make things, if you just can't make productivity go up, I mean... And I actually, this is too, is one of the few essays I've read from a Marxist who actually talks about um, how Marx talked about the relationship between politics and the social and feudalism. Um, for example, Arthur says, just as in feudalism, the powerlessness of the immediate producer was politically grounded in the USSR rather than on the economic separation from the conditions of production. If anything, workers were part of these conditions. And so, you know, that too is, is, is some of um, that gets at what, right, he goes on to say later, um, when he's talking about, and this is who you weren't pronouncing the name of, I think it's Mezaros, Mezaros. Um, he says, time and again, Mezaros, Mezaros, see, I just fucked it up, argues that capital continues in being until replaced by another organic system, namely socialism. What is missed here is the possibility of something stalled, the negation of capital, which is not yet the supersession of capital, an existent contradiction, therefore precisely a system not organically coherent and lacking any imminent motor of reproduction. But a negation of capital that fails to be go beyond capital is necessarily a negation of capital that falls behind capital. Hence the perception of Soviet workers that they were serfs and their initial enthusiasm for the market as liberation. So this lines up with Marx's argument that feudalism is ended by the thing that really makes the bourgeois revolutions revolutionary, which is political emancipation, which is that you now have these abstract rights and freedoms, you know, that the right to participate in the abstract sphere of the state, and you are disembedded from production, whereas in feudalism, you are politically coerced to be a permanent part of production rather than a com competitor on the open you know, wage market, right? So he goes on to say, Mizaros is clearly right to argue that socialist revolution is not merely a matter of a transfer of political power, right, or redistribution, 
but of changing the fundamental social metabolism established by capital. It means transforming the very structure of material production and abolishing the hierarchical division of labor. He's clearly right that post-capitalist social formations failed to achieve this positive transcendence, and the emergence of the bureaucracy is explicit is explicable primarily on that basis. And so I'd go on to argue that socialism, socialist revolution, is then a matter of imposing the social on the state, on the political, in a manner in which it ends the state's ability to manage social antagonisms, even in ways which seem to benefit society in the short run or stop the reactionaries or blah, blah, blah. Social contradictions are actually forced to play out. And in lower stage communism, the state isn't abolished, but the free movement of society towards communism is no longer blocked by it. I mean, this is why in lower stage communism, you need that that structuring element of, it doesn't have to be labor vouchers, but some kind of society independent thing where the workers' delegates are not just abstractly planning the economy, but you have something like vouchers where there is this input for demand that is society independent of the commune and the, of the, the workers' delegates who, by the way, should be workers who are, you know, temporarily delegated to this task um, and not, you know, permanent bureaucrats. So this isn't accomplished by political indifference, though, on the part of the proletariat. It's a conquest of politics by the proletariat, by the great majority of society. And so... I really think this is a fantastic piece um, on uh, the limits of political will, frankly. Well, it's just basic to historical materialism and like the, there are some situations where, you know, political will can be grounded in the social and create those, you know, large historic changes, you know, those epical moments. But, you know, those are very much the minority and, you know, unfortunately, Unfortunately, like the so the Soviet Union, unfortunately the Soviet Union tends to be like thought of as a moment when you know the ground shook underneath, and even the the peons to the October Revolution that Tikhtin is giving kind of nudge in a direction to you know kind of compensate, be like, hey, look, this is still a big, this is still a big flashpoint, even though the whole thing ended up in this huge ridiculous like. I don't know, stasis point that I guess, yeah, it was a total blind alley that apparently, according to Tickton, seems to have like artificially kept capitalism alive to a degree. Tickton really very much dislikes the USSR. Um, he's one of like, he's the kind of post Trotskyist that goes in the direction where, yeah, I don't know. It's something that yeah, really comes I, through in his writing. Yeah, I, I feel like he goes too far on that, but I understand why. I actually think Tickton I think Tickton too has this interesting kind of that that idea that the Soviet Union helped keep capitalism aloft or something like that. I think you you can't just talk about that in terms of the Soviet Union. You have to talk about that in terms of the expansion of state participation in the economy in capitalist societies too. Um, because it's like after the Great Depression, you see you know, it, before the Great Depression, actually, and before World War II, a lot of the taking care of their own members was done by the political parties themselves. And then they were no longer to do that, able to do that. And after that, the state takes a more direct role in keeping people glued on and keeping things aloft. And so, um, you know, I, I've heard libertarians argue something along the lines that basically we're still in the Great Depression, right? And that that um, that the artificial thing that's keeping things aloft is state spending. Cut out state spending and, and capitalism will collapse. And actually, you know, it's a little Keynesian funny for libertarians to think that, but it has a certain accuracy to it, right? I mean, has capitalism really resolved what caused the Great Depression? If, yeah, I mean, if, if the market was na never, the market was never able to naturally correct that, right? It's it's always it, the corrections that occurred after that were in the context of the state taking up a much larger portion of of uh, GDP or whatever the fuck a libertarian would say about it. 
Well, yeah, because the people, the guy who listened to the libertarians on the the Austrians on this was Herbert Hoover. You know, who's not very well remembered by history, unless you're a libertarian psycho, right? So, but I want to say, like the other the other big, you know, the other big factor in terms of like yeah, the sort of blind alley that the USSR ended up in was that. You know, the original plan was to like smash imperialism, right? And to do that was to basically conquer power in what was then the imperialist core. But once the window closed on that, yeah, it was basically kind of fucked. Well, yeah, I mean, that Lenin, Marx, Engels, they all thought that the proletarian revolution was going to be a continental European revolution at the very least. Right. And that ever, yeah, it would, because that, yeah, that was basically, because that's, that's the problem of imperialism, right? It, it, like, it, it, it enforces like certain like developmental necessities that make it very difficult to have, yeah, to like maintain like an egalitarian like social order, where because you there are like just the kind of yeah basically these imperatives, and you're even like a shittier situation like you're a small country like Ecuador or whatever like it's it's very hard to yeah implement things you know I mean look at, look at just like Hugo Chavez and like all the shit he got for the minor like welfare things that he did, you know. In the in the face of you know the IMF and the sort of like saw the sort of globalized powers that police the the world market in the interests of right. Like, I mean, you know, if you even States take small Europe. steps out of line, you get fucking slapped real hard. So right, yeah, it's that that's like that's like the probably the most like thing they want that that's like the one of the most black pilling aspects of it it's like how do you how can you find a way out of that you know how can you and obviously it wasn't everything because at a certain level like they had nukes and nukes are you know in the same way there's the old saying you know god made man and like sam colt made them equal you know like nuclear weapons do help to you know the mutually assured destruction does that probably <clears throat> act to a certain extent as like a pressure valve in terms of the needs to like develop a stronger military or whatever but anyway Good old Nash equilibrium. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to to take that like kind of <clears throat> you know Tickton's sort of like political read of the Soviet Union in a different direction. Uh, there is a section where he's dealing with the kind of political explanation that the ideology of the Soviet Union like wore off and the new generation couldn't believe it. Um, he. <laughs> His counter-argument is essentially that the people never believed the official propaganda, <laughs> and um, it, it's that it's it's doubtful that whether the regime would have ever received a substantial political, uh, substantial positive vote in an open and contested election. In that sense, the regime was always unstable, as it lacked any social base in the society. It was effectively rendered even more unstable by the patent collision of Soviet reality with Marxist goals when they continued to pay lip service to Marx and Lenin. Um, members of the society did not change their minds. So, on the on the other hand, the intelligentsia and the workers became progressively less afraid of the regime over time, as the distance from the purges increased, and as the sh- and as shooting workers became more costly. The secret police lost their power over society. He goes on to say, It would now appear that even the totalitarian theorists underestimated the degree of repression. The critical political economic role of the atomization of society, consequent on that repression, provided a key to an understanding of the evolution of the repression and atomization of the Stalinist society, and hence to its decline also. So, something that Tickton shares with fucking, you know, anti-revisionist tanks, right, is, is that the reason that this brutality got so had such, like, a desire to become all-consuming is because nothing less could keep the system together. Like, <laughs> like, and that when you, d- I mean, I don't know, think of someone like a Gorbachev, you know what I mean? He didn't want to fall the Soviet Union. He might have wanted, you know, new economic policy or, or something, you know what I mean? But he did not want the end of the Soviet Union. And Tikhtin, but also, you know, some random rabid tank c- could both say, no, that was the whole thing that kept it together. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, well, there were, there were you know, 
when it was collapsing, I've, I've read there were basically hardline. There was like the the split that seemed to be because there was talk about basically taking the Communist Party and splitting it into two parties, and so there would be a camp that was basically the old tanky types, like where it's like, no man, we got to take a hard the hardliners, we got to take a hardline and everything, and you're gonna fuck this all that up. That would have been great. And then the more the Gorbachev camp that would be more like you know, no, we need more reforms. You know, um, that didn't work out for a variety of reasons, but. <laughs> But yeah, like it, the, the, the tankies don't like being one of two parties. Well, some people even flipped. Like I think the I think Gorbachev's main mentor, kind of the guy who helped him like get to the seat of power, was originally much more behind some of his reforms. But then at, at a point turned and was like, "Oh no, like we got to take a hard hand now because you know we have to we, we need to crack things down." Um, and the idea of I mean, and so to some level, like Putin's kind of like filled that role, but you know, from without the outside the Communist Party, like the. Following like the disasters under um, Yeltsin and all that, like it, the the authoritarianism of Putin kind of served almost like a negative dialectic way, where it's like you get you get like the old kleptocracy and like a strong like KGB and all that shit, but you don't you don't get like the free healthcare and guaranteed job and place to live and shit. You know? <laughs> uh fucking negative dialectics yeah it's interesting actually we were talking a bit before the recording about uh we need to this is for ticton episode three so i don't want to totally mock it without really knowing why he says this but that um that ticton doesn't believe that the soviet that sorry that russia is fully capitalist now and i mean we brought this up because i was saying that you know i wasn't saying that russia isn't capitalist but i was saying that it seems like a weirdly deformed form of capitalism you know in the same way a lot of eastern european countries run on lumpen proletarianization and grift and stuff like that that there seems to be all this state-sponsored organized crime craziness that keeps russia going now yeah well it, i mean i think that that is what makes me weird about the whole like non-motive production thing because it it did reproduce itself for a period and if it's in a similar if capitalism is in a, a similar state of like disintegration like does that make it a non-motive production too you know or because yeah it was a i mean it did repro- it lasted like 80 years it was able to like reproduce itself day to day now granted there isn't like yeah, there isn't like a, a dialectic of like value that is allowing the system to self-regulate. That wasn't there, um, but right. Uh, I, yeah, and I th- I think it leaves a blank. Yeah, I mean that's what makes me weird about calling it like a non-motive production. But anyway, well, what well, what if what if gold is required? What if gold is required in order to uh, secure the value relation? <laughs> And uh, without the gold standard, I'm just doing, just filling in the Jehu blanks here. Without the gold standard, you know, the the whole circuit of capital is broken. So we are in a non-motive production, man. There we go. Re- real capitalism didn't exist until blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh God. Uh, listen. I was at. I don't know. I was. Um, <laughs> I was. At, I was at like this uh, anarchist like bookstore cafe or whatever. And they had a uh, Bitcoin ATM, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, this thing that's used to fund like Stormfront and buy child porn, like that's what you're gonna set up in here, you know? But Which I, anarchist bookstore? Call them out. I don't remember. It's in Asheville. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, you're, yeah. Fucking do the figures. math. That little that little bubble. Yeah. Um. I mean, there's there's very much to say about these things. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot like kind of like if it if if especially arthur's piece didn't try to like i don't know wrap up some of the like most difficult things about marxist theory all into one article i mean really you know he's there's just so many things that are being addressed between these two articles we could have done the arthur by itself arthur is analytically dealing with you know marxist like mode of explanation like you know trying to do hegelian explanation like on a very basic level he's drawing out historical materialism the idea of a mode of production and doing value theory i mean like 25 pages no big deal like and then ticton it 
And then Ticton is trying to solve the fall, falling up one of the most puzzling events of the 20th century, where one of the most powerful entities just fucking falls apart, becomes a shadow version of its competitor. Right. Like, well, one of the things one of the things I really love about the uh, the Arthur piece is that he doesn't just barrel into talking about the Soviet Union. He actually lays out his ideas about value and about capital and about capitalism. And dialectics. For like a pretty long time before he even mentions the USSR particularly specifically. And that's actually real strength of the essay. I think it's a, I think it's a good essay for just brushing up on, on value even. I gotta read both these books. Like, these are the kinds of essays that I read that make me feel like that somehow I've lost time by not reading these books. Like, you know, sometimes reading a book can feel like a waste of time, you know, and you're kind of like, damn, I could have done a lot instead of reading that book. But then I have I had like the opposite feeling where I'm like, holy shit, this is so good. What have I been doing with my life? How come I haven't read these? Like... I don't know. It was nice to feel the opposite of that feeling for once. Yeah, sometimes we read stuff and I'm like, oh, same old shit. Like, this is the argument I've seen for this thing on the left 800 times. Like, thanks for that. But, no. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, Yeah, I I like this methodology. I like like the way he he basically... He he explains, like, the aspects of value theory that are necessary to understand, like, what they're claiming was missing, like, in in the Soviet Union and in the, the process of production there. It does a pretty good job about talking about, yeah, the way that um, capital is like subsumed to capitalism or not, or how you can imp- what happens when you like import this like, technology that was subsumed to capitalism and try and apply it where there aren't the same incentive structures. Yeah. Fucking, we're gonna I guess post these, so uh, Verso or something, come sue us, Sebastian, come 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 break down our doors and and uh, Napster us. Yeah, it's it's somewhere in Libcom's like files, but they don't have it like a link on their website anymore. But you can still, you can still dig it out of their website somewhere if you through Google, basically. I mean, we do definitely at some point have to read Tickton's theory on why Russia still isn't capitalist. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, that would be fun, and and we got to read some some. Uh, I don't know. We got to got to read about Gorby. Yeah. We gotta we gotta get into Gorby's head. I wonder if I wonder if his thing is similar to like Michael Roberts' thing that the law of value is an operative in China. Yeah, that would be worth looking into, because it would mean I don't know. It would make like you know predictive. There'd be like predictive implications for the future of these things based on, I guess, whether you think it's capitalist or not. It's like at some point, you know, I don't know. There are, there's gonna be flashpoints of how to keep that system going. Or whether to collapse into capitalism if that's not already what's happened. That's it for this week. And, uh, wouldn't you know it, it's the end of the year. It's been a crazy year. 2019 seems like it's gone on forever. Your sense of time, probably distorted by the internet, um, has made the sequence of events hazy and the distance from them tough to get a good subjective feel on. Um, in 2019, we reduced our output a little bit. Uh, our average output comes out to about every other week. Um, and also, apologies, we haven't had an episode out in almost a month. One of our resolutions... Hold on a second, I, I hate this fucking song. Let me see here. Change this over. There we go. Yeah, that song's fucking depressing. I don't understand, like, why it's the New Year's standard. Like, it makes me want to stick my fucking head in up. I don't know about you. Uh, this, this, is, this has some juice, you know? This is how we kick off the year. Alright. Okay, so what was I saying? Uh, right, okay. So, in terms of our output, first of all, I want to thank everyone who's continued to support us, even in the lean times of content. And I promise you, more content is coming. Um, it will maintain a pace of about every other week, but we're going to try and get on a regular schedule. 
We are in the process of plotting out what we're doing going forward so that we have a little more time to prepare and we can bring you episodes that are quality and aren't kind of put together and slapped together in a rush, which we've avoided doing, I think, for the most part. But it's sometimes it really, at least for me, it feels like it's very down to the wire. Um, so, you know, new year, new podcast. Um, again, thanks to everybody for supporting us. Uh, we appreciate it. And we are going to... Uh, going to get things moving again one thing that we're actually going to experiment with is having not just having more guests on the program but maybe having just kind of open bookings so one of our ideas is in april we're going to read following up on the uh, old gods new enigmas mike davis episode we're going to look at really existing nationalisms by erica banner and we're thinking about just having kind of whoever wants to come on listeners anybody who writes in um so if you're interested in actually just being on the show with us in late april you want to read along with us on this drop us a line you know hit us hit us, hit us up on twitter email us so onside chats at gmail facebook wherever find us on discord if you're in the patreon uh, so we're gonna try and do that see if anyone's interested and yeah, we're cooking up a few different things. I'm um, looking forward to looking forward to what's coming in 2020. And uh, yeah. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>